I don't know about you, but at the end of a day, whether it's a work day or a school day, I like to, I like to explore things. For some of us, that can be on our favorite video game platform. Others, it may be crashing on the couch and putting on that favorite episode of whatever it is. Or maybe you let your imagination adventure in the pages of a good book. But for other of us, we like to take a more hands-on approach to our explorations through our hobbies, both indoor or outdoor. We all try to make time to explore. And in the case of today's guest, he made the time, as many of us parents do when our children go down to sleep, and instead of putting his feet up watching some Netflix, he investigated the interior world of mechanical watches, first for his own personal interest, but then, very quickly, it grew into something more for him. His name is Matt Zinsky, a fellow dad in the watch fam, founder of Tipsum Watches here in Seattle, Washington, and another friend of ours in the watch fam. You've tuned into the Analog Explorer podcast. Read about my analog manifesto, my passion for photography, and my love of travel, diving, hiking, and watches in print and online at analogexplorer.com. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the brand Tipsum Watches, they're a brand here out of Seattle, Washington. And Matt is one cool and humble dude. He's also a friend of mine in the Red Bar group here in Seattle. And that's where this recording picks right up. With both our schedules being filled with you know, the regular nine to five and being a husband and father and of course, analog explorers on the side. This is the only time that I could pick up a chat with him. One of the themes that I want to point out on this episode is the notion of what Matt founded in Tipsim Watches. Now, now Tipsim is an abbreviation or a contraction of two words that we will discuss later on the episode, but Tipsim and their build quality is really imbued with a lot of what the Pacific Northwest has to offer. If you're unfamiliar with this region, we tend to like our outdoors. Despite it being, on today's weather forecast, it will be partially cloudy with a chance of rain, always. And that's why watch collectors and watch muggles alike here, we tend to gravitate towards watches that are more robust. It needs to keep up with our Pacific Northwest lifestyle. Remember, we are surrounded by the Puget Sound, the Salish Sea, and the Pacific Ocean, and then flanked by the Cascades and Olympic mountain ranges. It's not uncommon for some of us to have that field watch be worn in a boardroom and then straight to a trailhead. For others of us, like yours truly, that diver on my wrist is more than just a desk diver, but we'll see the emerald green waters of the Puget Sound this weekend. That's what's interesting about Tipsum watches. The fact that their designs, typical, perhaps maybe even similar, to designs of the past, but they all bring a new take on design that resonates both with watch muggles and watch collectors alike, even designed to show patina or age with its wearer. More on that later in the episode. But by design, Matt and Tipsum watches encourage their wearer to get a little hands-on in life. For me, I like any brand that uses the Pacific Northwest as its proving ground because if it can keep up with us in our lifestyle here, then it can keep up with you wherever you like to make time to explore. If you're listening to this and you notice that the sound's a little bit different, we are actually coming to you live from the floor of an undisclosed location in Seattle. And uh, we're, we're just uh, on the tail end of a Red Bar event. And Matt, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with me. Um, let's dive into... The, the, uh-huh. <laughs> I know, I know. I, 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 I'm, I'm a dad, like yourself. Like it's, I'm just punny. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, are you a watchmaker or like, how did you get into watches? Oh, that's a great question. I am uh, a trained and work as an architect. That's my day job. This is what I do nine to five. And uh, it's, it's been something that's always uh, a hands-on 
learning and education experience. And so I, when it comes to architecture school, I built everything that I, I learned to design. And we come from a do-it-yourself kind of background in our architectural education. On top of that, I'm a, I'm a father. I've got two kids, 11 and 8, and uh, they're terrific. But let's say five, six years ago, they would go to bed early and we needed a pretty darn quiet house. And uh, I'm, I'm one to be active and doing things. And it was a big question to me of what am I going to do when it's 6 or 7 p.m., the kids are put down, and maybe I don't want to veg out and just watch TV for four or five hours and then wake up and go to work again. And so I, I kind of took inspiration from my first mechanical watch, uh, an old Wittenauer from the 40s. Nice. And it uh, had the worst loom. <laughs> and so I, I always wanted that to change. I always wanted it to be a different color, to be more perfect, a little bit cleaner, better application. Okay. And so... I'm telling this very roundabout story of the kids being asleep, me wanting to fix something, and me coming from a very much do-it-yourself education and background, family upbringing. And uh, this all culminated to me saying, you know, why don't I take this thing apart and redo the loom? And uh, it's probably easier said than done. No, it it is easier said than done. It is very easy said than done. And I uh, I, I really, I very quickly realized that if I were to take this thing apart, I was going to break something and it was going to be a big problem. Naturally. And uh, so this is is where I decided I needed to start learning and tinkering with watches so I could achieve that goal of relooming that old Wittenauer. And uh, so I just started having at it with uh, just trying to buy old watches, cheap watches, uh, Chinese movements, and just taking them apart, putting them back together, and trying to learn how to do this stuff. And uh, I just kept going with it. And I I got into doing watch mods. I got into doing relooms. And I kept making expensive mistakes, learning from them, and then deciding to make another more expensive mistake and just kept pushing and pushing until I was uh, not just getting a cheap Seiko or Chinese watch, but I was moving up to grabbing an Omega, and then I was grabbing a Rolex, and then I was servicing Pateks, and it was just stretching myself further and further and accepting that it was going to be an expensive learning process, but just diving in and, and doing it. And all of those projects, you, you're probably like, you, you know, you're working on that Patek and you put everything together and you're like, huh, I have extra parts, right? Like, yeah, that's yeah. how that works? <laughs> that's how I started my watch company was I got all the extra parts from ah, those. <laughs> so that's how Tipsum came around. So Tipsum is, is two words, an abbreviation, isn't it? Yeah, so Tipsum, I, I've taken a lot of inspiration from being an architect. And so the, uh, the brand name, the brand logo, all comes from architectural abbreviations, symbology, mm-hmm. or symbols within architectural drawing standards. And so the, the uh, split circle, this is a reference mark. And this is something we use in architecture hmm. so that when you do a drawing, you, you may reference that detail to another one so that and when you're building it, you know what details relate to one another. Huh. And so I really kind of got attracted by this this circle with the cross uh the split horizontal split yeah and uh thought that this it it hearkened or kind of semi-referenced other watch symbols or watch logos or things within kind of uh the the i'll say the dive industry is probably the wrong word but yeah um you know and it it seemed like it it could bridge and not have to be solely an architectural symbol Mm -hmm. so i i thought it was cool and then 
uh, a lot of people have seen my watch and thought, oh, you, you're just kind of, you're carving off of the, uh, the 50, 50 Fathoms. fathoms. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a lucky, fun happenstance, but it's not, not where this thing came from. Um, and then the name also kind of comes from those same reference markers, that when you do the reference, you can abbreviate with a tip or a sim. And these terminologies mean typical and similar. similar. And so kind of combining those two to, to create the, the namesake for the company and kind of building off of what, you know, you can interpret what you want to out of that, but the reference marker is typical, similar. Um, maybe you are kind of building iterative designs that, that come from something, but they're uniquely my own. What's funny is, is that like knowing, knowing your background and then uh, having, thank you for letting me borrow a watch once. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit, but like, you know, typical and similar, like, especially because your first watch was a diver and it's a quintessential diver. Like you got big loom plots, you got a big bezel that's legible and stuff. It's typical and similar to most divers. Like I, I found, I found that part interesting. So when did Tipsum get founded? Tipsum got founded as an architectural company, uh, kind of side projects for myself way back in 2005 with a couple of my friends in school who were doing side projects and Okay. Architectural experiments. And uh, I held on to the namesake and let that become my side projects as I grew my professional career. And uh, when I decided to start the watch company back in 2019, I decided I would just keep going with that name. So it, it went from being what I used to refer to, we called it Tipsim Industries. And so then I shortened it down to Tipsim or Tipsim Watches uh, just to make sure people know it's a watch company. Right, right. Got to get that SEO these days. Yeah. So you're based out of Seattle. Like, is this, do you assemble these in Seattle or what, how, how are these manufactured? Yeah, that's is, these are designed in Seattle, assembled in Seattle, tested in Seattle. Right on. The components are coming from uh, Hong Kong and China, Switzerland and Canada. And I'm the first watch, the 200M, this is the dive watch that I designed some of them were the 200MC, which is the chronometer, chronometer. certified. Mm -hmm. And so they went over to France to Besançon Observatory to be certified with them. So it's kind of a worldwide production all culminating to Seattle. So when, when you designed this, like what, I mean, did you, did you start with looking at a reference like the 50 Fathoms? Like why, why this design? I, a lot of references. Um, I'd say... The big ones are Seamaster, 50 Fathoms, Submariners, mm -hmm. but then I get into like Titus Divers and old Walkmans and looking at these skin divers from the 60s and just the experimentation and playfulness of what they're doing with their, with their dials and designs. I do have to say though that when I designed this, I was trying to put myself in the mindset of how do I iterate within the design languages of watches imagining I was in the 60s or 70s. Oh, so if I wanted to create a, a unique design or be quintessentially my own dial, what would I do to differentiate? So if you look at Rolex, they've got the circles, hashes, and triangle. You look at Tudor, they've got squares. Look at uh, Omegas, and they've got the pills. parallelogram yeah. pills. Yeah. So they all have their very unique design language, and I didn't want to do the same design language as them. And so I, I looked further back to, let's say, the 40s and said, well, what are watches designed with? How do people create indexes? There's obviously numerals, Arabic and Roman. Uh, there's hashes or ticks and there's dots. 
And I realized that nobody leaned into the dot and said, let's take the circle marker and just make a dial with circles. I think Seiko comes the closest, but yeah. they still create an oblong shape to it and they still have a very differentiated 12 o'clock. And so I decided to lean right into the dot and expand on the design language of historical watches, create my iteration of that and try to create a design that's very much my own, but still within the lineage of dive watches and watches. That's cool. Diving into the dial. Tell me about the the loom because like the dial loom, you've got your insignia at the top and it's blue with the loom on the bottom, but the whole thing glows as well as the bezel, which I appreciated <laughs> in our pristine Puget Sound dark waters at 100 feet. Tell me a little bit about the looming of your, your watches. I'm going to change your question, Thank but you. I'm going to talk about my interest in how materials are applied to watches. And I am hands down a vintage watch enthusiast. I love the proportions, the materials, the design aesthetic and execution of it. They're just fantastic. And I, I have to ask myself, well, why don't I gravitate towards modern? What, what is it about that? And one part of it is the materials. It drives me crazy to buy a watch and expect it's going to stay in perfection, in perpetuity. Yeah. So these materials are um, without change. So you use a ceramic bezel. Well, it's not going to patina. It's not no. going to transform over time. It's going to look the same 50 years from now as it does now. Day one. Un unless you chip it or something. But it's... That notwithstanding. And... And I think even that speaks to it. You, you chip a sapphire, you're not about to buff that out. You're going to replace it. You're going to buy a new sapphire and you're going to pay a, a fair bit of money to get that sapphire changed out. What I love about old watches is the materials. They have a softness to them. They allow you to repair and to age with your use, with your time and with your experience. And I think this is, uh, I, I go back to Jun Tanazaki with In Praise of Shadows, um, a Japanese philosopher who talks about the, uh, I'll say wabi-sabi, of materials and objects, and that within darkness and within use, it creates a certain aesthetic and storytelling and uh, beauty. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't come from modern things. No. And so to your question, why the loom? Why the, and to me, why the materials? So I leaned into the idea of acrylic. I leaned into the idea of using um, a gilt dial as opposed to applying plastic paint with metal uh, pigment in it. And I leaned into working in a loom that would patina over time. And so reaching out to Superluminova over in Switzerland and talking with them, they were more than happy to help me develop a compound that would, over time, and exposure to UV, transform its aesthetic. That's cool. And so it's, uh, uh, it's a lot like uh, vintage Stratocasters. And so you put on a cellulose uh, finish to it, and with UV exposure, it does turn slightly yellowish, and it gives you that really warm, beautiful aesthetic, that, that image of the, the old guitars. And so we use that kind of process to inform how we created this compound. So it's not radioactive. It's not... Uh, it won't burn or degrade. Yeah, it's not going to do anything like that, but it's going to act just like those old guitars in the way that the loom will slowly change over time. Now, is that because of UV exposure or just the time delay of the actual material? It's definitely UV exposure. Okay. And I think a little bit of that is going to be the material decay, mm. but it's it's not like old tritium where if you put it in a drawer, it turned the best yellow. This okay. is going to be something where you go out and you use it. And if you're living at the equator and you're out in the sun every day, 
I expect that this is going to transform much faster than if you're, uh, say, in Seattle where we are and we don't see the sun. <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, we do. Like, well, not today with all the smoke, but we, we do for like two months out of the year. Yeah, yeah. Now, is that only is that that material only on the dial or is it also the hands, the bezel? It's on everything. Yeah. Everything. Okay. All the loom is that that quality loom. Oh, that's crazy. So potentially, like anybody who wears uh, a tipsum, it'll be unique to that individual at that parallel Absolutely. in their life. Yep. That's killer. So uh, to, to also bring in a little bit of your, your, your Japanese philosophy here, Tipsum, ever since getting to know you, like I can, I can tell you that you embrace Kaizen. Like you have incremental changes, incremental progress. You went from the diver in the diver C, uh, the, uh, the 200 uh, MC. Then you went over to a dress watch, the right. Noir. Right. So uh, why? Well, I've got a... I like diversity in my collection. I mean, I, I do like a sports watch. I'm not necessarily one to gravitate towards something with no water resistance. Yeah. Uh, but when I go to the dress watch, it's very much a field watch inspired, do anything, or, or I, I should say gotta, right? Go anywhere, do yeah, anything. Gotta. Yeah, um, But it's it's the intent that you, you can dress it up and it can be a smaller watch and you can feel... Uh, like like it's more of a formal piece, mm-hmm. but you could just still wear it every day, any day, wherever you're doing, whatever you're doing. And the intent here was to create something that uh, has a design language that's very versatile, uh, moving formal to casual. And I also wanted to move smaller. I, I designed the dive watch with a 39 millimeter case, 41 bezel, and tried to make it as slim as possible to still get the 200 meter water resistance and I, you know, it went pretty well. I think maybe we could shave off a few fractions of a millimeter in future iterations, mm-hmm. but ultimately really push the envelope with what manufacturers are willing to do uh, in slimness. And so moving to the dress watch was the intent to make a smaller watch, more versatile watch, and let it wear a little bit smaller, but still command the, the wrist presence, but also the wear it every day um, feeling. You know, you've got you've got the kind of engine turn style bezel uh, on the outside, but this has a screw down crown, water resistant to two hundred meters. One hundred. One hundred meters. Yeah. Like this is this is a Pacific Northwest dress watch. This is when you can you can go to uh, go to the stadium and then it's going to be a great day, and all of a sudden you get deluge and you won't have to worry. Right. <laughs> I, right. You know, uh, for those that dress up to go see Macklemore, I don't know. There you go. <laughs> um, then from there, so you went from the Noir. And then we have what you just announced uh, fairly recently. Yeah, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Just a couple of weeks ago. Tell me about your field watch. Yeah, so the field watch, call it the guide. Um, trying to, a little bit of play off of a field guide. And for this one, it was taking the cues of the Noir with a smaller, comfortable wearing watch and then trying to push it more towards the sport casual aesthetic. And so I wanted it to be very functional, very legible, um, very bold, but also small and wearable and comfortable. And so I'm trying with this one to continue that trajectory towards a, a smaller, more comfortable, slim wearing watch with uh, an aesthetic that's distinctly casual, sporty, and outdoorsy. And all, all of these, including your, your Noir, all this has your compound, the, the loom? Yes. Yeah. The loom's going to be the compound. That's rad. I'm trying to stick true to the material usage. So all of the releases, the first releases are gilt dials. They use that luminescent compound, acrylic crystal. Okay. Um, still working with the 316 stainless steel. So right. I'm not moving towards titanium or 904, but trying to keep it that slightly softer, 
more patinaable stainless steel. Wabi-sabiable. Yes, yes. So with all of that, there was a release in between here that was a limited release, and it was a collab yep. with Second Second. Tell me about the nitrogen narcosis. Yeah, this was this was <laughs> which a is blast. on my wrist, by the way. <laughs> this was it looks great. Oh. Uh, this was really fun. So I've always admired Sakon Sakon. I, I got one of his sword hands. I installed it on one of my old uh, vintage Rolexes. But and that would be a legit sword yeah, as a hand. Yeah. Let me let me just uh, for for those that are un, unfamiliar with Sakon Sakon's uh, tongue in cheek uh, methodologies. It's uh it's the most irreverent, playful juxtapositions you can do in I think the watch world today it's great he's a terrific artist uh, and so I've admired him since I saw that sword hand so the literal sword and uh, fast forward to releasing my watch it builds some momentum he reached out to me and said I, I've got an idea for your watch I'd love to do a collab so I, I think that was to me that felt like the day that I made it and I was ready to retire was having Sakon Sakon reach out to me. I, I can feel you. That's cool. And, uh, and from there, we, we had this uh, collaborative artistic exchange where we played and iterated ways to intervene and juxtapose something onto the dial. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, always kind of hovering around the idea that if you took tips M and you got rid of the M, you could be tipsy. And what does it mean to be tipsy? And what does it mean to be on a dive watch? And so uh, the nitrogen narcosis came out of the idea of feeling tipsy within a tips M watch. No, I, I, I absolutely love it. When, when you teased it on Instagram, I, was, I immediately reached out to you because I was just like, this... For me, that resonates because you let me borrow one of your, your press pieces, and I believe I was the first diver to dive with a Tipsum. And it happened to be when I was doing my deep certification course. So we were diving to get tipsy. I mean, that's, that's part of the process that you, you know, can work out what nitrogen narcosis is in, in your body because everybody's different. And so when you, saw, uh, when you, when you uh, tease this, I immediately was just like, oh, my God, this is great. The case back. So you've got, uh, uh, you, have a, you have a quote from somebody that wears a red cap by the name of Cousteau. And it <laughs> says, the chief symptom of nitrogen narcosis is, to put it bluntly, the sensation of becoming as drunk as a hoot owl. There you go. That is pretty much accurate. <laughs> uh, I've got to start diving so I can really experience this and know it. Yeah, so a, a lot of us uh, call it being deep drunk, which it, it literally does feel that. So there's this uh, colloquialism of Martini's Law. It's actually not a scientific mm, I, law. I've read the Martini's Law for sure. Yes, yes. And so once you hit usually about 100 feet, you start to feel its effects. And then every 10 feet below that, uh, you, it's like having one extra Martini. Well, if you're deep certified, you can go down to 130 feet. So... Um, I, I can I can tell you, uh, my dive partner and I, we dove Lake Whatcom up in Bellingham, and we found this, um, there's these, uh, Lake Whatcom is actually a fairly deep lake, so we found these walls out in the lake, so we took the boat, we went out there, and we're, we're finding it, and we went down, we're kind of cruising, so we hit 60, checked in with each other, we're good, we hit 80, cool, and then we hit 90, and then 100, and it kind of just stayed there for a little bit, and we're like, huh, there's supposed to be a sheer drop, because Lake Whatcom can go down to like 350 feet. And it gets dark down there. And all of a sudden, it was like a scene out of the abyss where it just dumps into black. Huh. And Andy and I looked at each other and we're like, oh, oh, oh. And we looked at each other we're like, oh, my God, we are drunk as scumps uh. right now. <laughs> we're like kids <laughs> at 130 uh, 30 feet. And uh, our dive computers are prompting us. We need to start making our ascent and stuff. Like, like I said, I, I love the fact that your diver, just for my personal story, the fact that you collabed with Sagon uh, Sagon and called it nitro narcosis. I, I, it's, it's a great watch. It's awesome. Well, thanks. 
so riddle me this in the progression of, and like i said i get this vibe that you have very much kaizen like when when you came up with the diver the diver was originally launched when what year boy was that 2020 2021 yeah 2021 back, it was pretty yeah. much right after the pandemic if yeah. i recall so 2021 it's 2023 you've come up with one two uh three four five watches and you're a one-man shop here in Seattle. One-man show. You got it. That's amazing. I'm the uh, fulfillment guy, the design guy, and everything else in between. Yeah, and, and a, a really kind-as-the-day-is-long kind of guy. So there's something I'm, I'm seeing a trend. So you've got, you got, the, you got the diver, you got the field, you got, a, you got the dress. Are you going to make a flyer? That's a tough one. The GMT, see... Or a different twist on a, on a, on a flyer? These, the quintessential question of the GMT, the two time zone. Mm-hmm. And I, I have trouble just going to take one of my watches and applying a fourth hand to it and saying, here we go, we've got a GMT, throw in a flyer, throw in a GMT movement. Yeah. It doesn't feel like I'm doing justice to the question of what does it mean to make a watch that's two time zones or related to GMT timing? And uh, I haven't solved that. I haven't answered that question for myself yet. Um, and where I think I'm going with it, and I haven't, uh, again, I haven't fully designed the idea. Sure. Is I'm more interested in a two time zone, two 12 hour hand watch. Yes. Something yes. where you can jump a skeletal or secondary hand when you travel and you can either jump it to tell the time you're at or the time you were at, whatever. And um, to me, that's the really important thing. I, I, when I think about my travels, when I think about the relationships of uh, time zones amongst the world and what it means to go through these things, I really kind of think that you want to know the the 12-hour time. And I, I could be way off here, but... You know, I, I design for my personal experience. I design what I like. And I kind of think when it comes to the extra time zone, I want to look at two 12-hour hands. So I'm working through that idea. Well, when, when you work that through and you have a prototype, you have a diver that is willing to, to test that. I, I just recently, uh, I was recording with the Zulu Time podcast over in the UK. And Dan and I, we were talking about the fact that, like, you know, there's all these 24-hour hand uh, watches right. that are coming out right now, largely because we have finally accessible movements at yep. affordable prices. But if you look back in, in the catalog and repertoire of watches and, fly, and flyers, you know, during that skin diver era, there was a fork where there was a bunch of 12-hour bezeled watches so that you could have that, you know, passive second time zone without having a complicated movement. Yep. And, you know, I didn't prompt you on that question, but like, I kind of had that vibe from you. Like I figured if anybody would do that, like, or that would be in your, your kind of ethos at Tipsum. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's where I look at that. And the, the question of what kind of watches are next, I'm, I think I'm looking at, uh, you know, chronographs always hanging out there, but again, mm. it's a question of what movement to use and what's the function of the chronograph. Right, Am I designing right. this for racing? Is this for yacht racing? What is it? What's the chronograph? And again, I, I have the question. I don't have the answer. And so I, I kind of look at the next watches in development right now is I, I do want to create another 36 millimeter mm. and I'm going to call it the architect watch. So kind of looking at Bauhaus uh, aesthetics um, inspired by the purity of form and function coming together. And, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't design some kind of a watch that was for, for your trades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's in the works. Um, I'm also trying to, with that watch, I'm also exploring ideas of material 
pushing the material usage. And uh, again, as an architect, very attracted to things like core 10 steel. Well, what if I can add that rust patina to the dial? So we'll see. We'll Interesting. see. What about bronze? Because I mean, you know, I'm a fan of bronze, but like, I feel like when it comes to patina and showing an age and not being pristine, that's, that's bronze to a T. It is, but that's too much for me. Okay. So I've, I've agreed with my manufacturer. We're going to do stainless right now. Cool. But we're going to try to experiment and move into German silver soon. Oh. And so the intent there is that's got a place in watchmaking from early history of watchmaking. And it has a material uh, workability similar to steel, but it has a patina similar to silver. And so it falls in this middle ground that you can really create a patina without going to the extreme of brass, bronze, or whatever. Oh, that's rad. And you heard it first, folks. That's rad. <laughs> so if, if I could, and, you, and, and I can cut this if need be, can we talk about this watch that made, uh, shout out to Hamza, uh, made Hamza basically stop the red bar group and call you out. What is this blue watch that's in front of me right now? Yeah, I, I, I made a little bit of a allusion to it on Instagram the other, other week. Um, and looking at creating what I'm calling the 200MN Ooh. So a lot of people might jump to the conclusion, Marine National, but it's not quite that. It's not quite inspired by that, but it's also trying to allude to it for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at a, a no-date 200 and looking at how to make the next iteration of dial. So trying to start everything with a gilt dial and then transition into using color or different dial applications. So this one hasn't really been released out to the public for viewing yet because I'm, I'm not quite set on the dial. I'm working through it. Okay. Um, today I've got kind of a, a light matte satin pebble texture dial. Uh, I wouldn't even call it pebble. It's not that heavy. Uh, it's grainy. It's sandy. Sandy, maybe. Yeah. And it's, it's attractive and I like it, but I, I'm also experimenting with a, a bit of a sunray. And I'm trying to test to see if I can do a blue dial. So using the heat treatment to transform the dial into the blue color. Oh, interesting. Uh, so trying to see where I can go with the material and development process with the, the dial before it goes out to the public. Oh, this is great. I love everything about, I like the coloring. I love everything. The other thing that I immediately noticed that I thought was interesting is the blue in your logo is kind of in it's inverse. You have an orange and, and yellow. Is that kind of what the vibe you're kind of going for on, on this release? Or is that just because this is a beta? No, no. So the, the blue split circle uh, on the original dive watch was, was a graphic use of the blue to create the split circle logo at 12. Mm. It's also different to differentiate that marker so that for diving purposes, you knew which one was 12. Yeah. Uh, move to this one, I need to continue to differentiate that. But if I go to a blue dial, I don't want to have a split blue circle on that makes blue. Sense. It's too much blue. Yeah, that's a lot of blue. And I'm blue, Abu Di Abu Dai. I get you. Uh, I'm probably just dating myself again. That's awesome. And again, all of this still has your your lumen stuff. So this will this will age totally no than the rest of them. Yeah, that's great. So as I as I ask everybody that comes on the Analog Explorer, why watches? Why watches? I mean, I've always been into watches, always kind of had one on my wrist since my days with fossil and diesel watches in elementary, middle school. Uh, But it's, to me, it's an accessory that tells a story of our lives. And I think it's so fascinating that these, these objects will go through so much with us and they'll have the staying power to, to be a part of our lives. 
Um, unlike maybe a pair of shoes or a hat or a coat uh, or whatever object or accessory you might have, a suitcase, umbrella, I don't feel like they have the same lifespan or capability to be a part of our life stories as a watch does. And I find that to be so fascinating, so engaging. Uh, and then you top that off with the mechanical intricacies of these and how they tell time and what they stand for. What is time? What does time mean for us? And it's, it's got everything for me. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again so much for listening, rating, reviewing, and subscribing to The Analog Explorer, whether it's in your favorite podcast app of choice or on Substack at analogexplorer.com. Now, after this, if you're interested in Tipsum watches, be sure to check out their website, tipsum.com. That's T-Y-P-S-I-M.com. You can also find Matt and Tipsum watches on the Instagram. He's at Tipsum watches, T-Y-P-S-I-M watches. I'm AJ Barsay, your Analog Explorer, reminding you to make the time to explore. <laughs>